Well, we're glad to be here with you this evening. And, uh, you know, as Pastor asked me to preach, I uh, wasn't really sure where he was going to be at. I was glad to, to come. And so I began thinking through um, what I could preach on. And I came across this video um, talking about uh, phrases that are common in Christianity that they call Christianese. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase. Christianese, in other words, words that we use in Christianity that we just know what they mean or maybe we don't know what they mean, and we use them often. And he uh, mentioned uh, that uh, for, some pe- for some reason he had gotten saved and he, he heard his church talking about doing a church plant. And uh, he's like, oh, a church plant, that's kind of interesting. And, and then I said, yeah, and we're going to raise $100,000 for our church plant. And he said, what kind of plant would you do for $100,000? And he, of course everybody knew what the pastor was talking about except him. And so afterwards he talked to the pastor and he got it figured out what a church plant was. But you know, we often use uh, phrases like that and we kind of just assume that we know what they mean or that people know what they mean. And I, I think as I began thinking about what to preach on tonight, my mind immediately went to um, really two, two words that we oftentimes use in relation to our faith and um, understanding how to apply those. And, and the question I want to answer this evening is, is what happens at your point of salvation? In, in other words, what do these words like, I asked Jesus into my heart, or I got saved, or I made Jesus my Savior, what do we mean when we use these words? How does God bring a person to salvation? You know, many, many people were Christians at a young age, and uh, they were convinced of the truths of Christianity as a child, or others were saved when they were older, but maybe they find themselves unable to express how God saved them from their sins. So when you're telling someone how God worked in your life, when you're giving your testimony, what do you say? How did God bring you to that point of salvation? What did you do to accept Christ as your Savior? So this evening, I'd like to walk you through two key terms of salvation and how they actually explain that concept of salvation. The two key terms of salvation, I would say, are this, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. And so this evening, I want us to understand this biblical concept of faith and repentance and how that applies to our salvation. Before we do anything else, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ that came to us and that through the Spirit's conviction in our lives, we repented of our sin and turned to Christ in faith. And Lord, as we look at these really common concepts, these concepts, that, these words that we uh, perhaps say and we just assume that people know what we're talking about when we use them, what I pray is we unpack them this evening, that you would help us to understand a little bit more about our knowledge of you, a little bit more about our faith, and that perhaps uh, we would be a better testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even being able to express what you did in our lives and how you saved us. Lord, thank you so much for your love. I pray that we would be um, lifted up today, and just let me pray. Amen. So, we prayed. Let's unpack these biblical concepts. Let's deal with the first one. And when we get saved, the very first, uh, perhaps, point of salvation is that word faith. You know, faith is a common concept in our society. Uh, you might hear a coach say, I have faith that our guys are going to win this game. I don't know if you guys pay attention to college sports, but there was a well-known football player, Deion Sanders, who coached a team, and they were 20-point underdogs. And he, I saw the halftime speech, and he went in and said, guys, I have faith in you. I believe in you that we're going to win this game. 
And of course, they came out and ended up winning this game, 20-point underdogs, and here they are. They win this game. So we hear that sometimes. I have faith that we can win this game. Or perhaps you hear an educator say, uh, we have faith in the future generations to create a better world. Now, you only hear that type of sentence at an educator's conference. And they only hear that from an educator who has not actually been in the field. <laughs> it's like, you know, this person's got their PhD. They never taught a class before in their lives, but they'll tell other people how to teach a class. And they say, we have faith in future generations. I'm sure all of us right here have faith in future generations, right? Okay. <laughs> I didn't get a lot of amens on that. But anyways, um, so we, we hear that word. We hear faith used a lot in society. But what does the Bible mean when it talks about having faith in Christ? I'd argue this. Biblical faith is made up of three components. Knowledge, belief, and trust. So let's deal with the first one. Faith starts with knowledge. Before a person is able to trust Christ, he or she must learn the truths of the gospel. The first step to faith is knowing that Christ died and rose again for your sins. We find this in Romans chapter 10. This is more of a topical message, so you can kind of follow along with me as you're able. But Romans chapter 10 says this in verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how, they, how shall they believe in him on whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So Paul uses a, a list of rhetorical questions, and he says, How can a person believe if they have not heard the gospel? And of course, the answer is they can't, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, faith has to start with knowledge. We have to have the knowledge of the person who we're putting faith in. The gospel message is urgent. Lost people need to hear the gospel so that they can have this basic knowledge. You know, the truth is, unless someone hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, unless they receive the knowledge of the goodness of God, they can never have faith in God. They can never have true saving faith. So faith must start with knowledge. It also must have belief. You know, many have heard the gospel, but don't believe it's true. Belief says this, I know what the gospel is, and I'm convinced it's true. You know, there, there may be things that you know, but you're not convinced that they're true. Uh, you know, Brother Will was talking about the FBI agent that's going to come in and talk about how people try to scam you out of your, their money. Um, and uh, I'm sure he'll take an offering afterwards. I'm just kidding. Anyway, so... Um, so uh, you have these, these people who call, and, and there's all these scams that are, that are going around. And the ones, of course, I, I heard some about were the IRS agent calls. I don't know if you've heard of these, where the people call and pretend to be IRS agents, you know. And so you may know what they're saying, but do you believe it to be true? Odds are an IRS agent isn't going to have an Indian accent, right? You know, it's like, oh, you're an IRS agent. Yes, I'm an IRS agent. I can't even do the accent to, to try, but... They're not going to have an Indian accent. Or the other one I that was interesting was uh, they, would call, uh, they would call and say, it's your grandson, I've been in an accident, you know. And you're like, well, you've been in an accident. So they hope that, you know, I really need you to, well, why do you have, you suddenly got an Indian accent. What happened there? Uh, you know, well, it's my lip. You know, I got my lip bumped or something. That suddenly made me become Indian. And, uh, you know, the reason why I'm using that is that's where most of the scam calls are coming from. But um, so you, you have these scam calls that are coming in. You may know what they're saying, right? But hopefully you're not believing that they're saying to be true. So you must have belief. And then finally, you must have trust. 
while knowledge and belief are important, they aren't enough. The Bible tells us that de- the demons know the truth, and yet they be- and they believe it as well, and yet they despise Christ. Saving faith not only knows and believes, it results in coming to Christ as one's own Savior. You know, James 2.19 tells us there, he says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Congratulations, you believe that's not enough. And in fact, we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the, de- the demons are talking to, to Christ as he's going to cast them out. They say, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. So the demons knew who God was. Jesus in the flesh had come as God himself. They knew who he was. They saw him. They believed but that wasn't enough for them. Saving faith not only knows and believes, it results in coming to Christ. Jesus in, in John 6, 35 says this, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. See, see faith isn't just the knowledge. It's, it's not belief. It's also trust. You know, the, uh, the, the, the classic illustration to me with this is the, the, the famous tightrope walker, Charles Blondin. I, I don't know if you've heard this story, but uh, it was, it was, uh, he was a well-known tightrope walker in the 1800s, and um, he was known for doing all these stunts, and one of his big stunts that he would do is he would go across Niagara Falls. Now, he wouldn't do it actually over the falls, but he'd go before the falls so that, you know, if you fell in, you'd probably float over the falls. I guess that's the illusion of danger. And, of course, um, he would do these, these, these stunts. And so uh, the one, this is actually, I think this is actually a real picture of Charles uh, Blondin, one of the very last pictures of him doing this stunt. But um, he, would, he would go and he'd carry a person on his back, and, of course, the this, the story goes as he's, he's there, he comes and says, do you believe that I can carry, uh, carry you on, on my back? And they go, yes, 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 right? And, and, and they say, okay, you believe. You, you, you know that I've done it, right? They'd seen him do it a couple times. You believe it? Yes, we believe it. Now, who wants to hop on, right? And, and see, there's a difference between knowledge and belief without trust, isn't there? You see, a person could know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. They can believe even, even that he did that. But unless they're willing to trust in him, they don't have true faith. Do you trust in me? No, then that's not true faith. The first key in your salvation then is faith. You must know Christ as your Savior. You must believe that he died and rose again. And you must trust him to save you from your sins. Now, sometimes Christians are tempted to stop here at the gospel story. You just need to have faith, have a little bit of faith. All you need is faith. Now, they're correct that faith is the key to their salvation, but it's not the only key. And so we must understand the second part of salvation, the second part of of conversion is repentance. Repentance. When a person turns to God in faith, he also turns away from their former life in Christ. Before Christ, I should say. First Thessalonians 1.9 says this, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice how he said there, he tur- you turned to God from idols. You served the living and true God. Saving faith is always accompanied by repentance. 
Even more so than faith, I think we often misunderstand this biblical concept of repentance. A lot of times when you hear the word repentance, you think of someone apologizing or saying, I'm sorry. But that's not what true biblical repentance is. As I mentioned there, he says, I turned, you turned to God from idols. Repentance is turning away from something and turning towards something else. And again, I would say repentance has three parts as well. The first part is agreement. Agreement. Instead of minimizing the seriousness of sin, repentance calls it what it is. Sin, transgression, iniquity. Psalm 51, 1-2 says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. You see, one of the, real, one of the biggest reasons why repentance isn't just apologizing is because it's apologizing isn't recognizing the truth of, of what's going on there, Right? The, uh, repentance isn't the same as apology. It, it's recognizing for what it is. And you recognize this as well because you've all probably have seen a kid apologize, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have children or you've even seen children do this, it's the, it's the old, okay, you hurt your, your sister's feelings, you hurt your brother's feelings, you, you hit them when you shouldn't have done that. Now, we dealt with this in the bedroom. Now, let's go apologize, right? And how often is that apology a real apology, 10% of the time, you know, it's like, okay, well, we want to start that habit, of course, and we want, to, we want to, that to be a habit for them, but not often is that apology a true apology, and sometimes, it, for me at least, maybe you, you guys have perfect kids, but sometimes that apology becomes another trip to the bedroom, you know, then we have to come back out, and okay, now let's try it again, let's do the apology here, right? But it starts with repentance, it's not that just, I'm going to apologize, mommy and daddy are making me. Rather, it recognizes sin as it is. You know, we often, we often approach this and we tend to minimize our sin, don't we? Right? And, and true repentance isn't minimizing it. How often have you heard someone maybe try to excuse their actions? And, and they say things like this, it was a mistake. Right? Now, can we make mistakes? Yeah, right? You, you got into the one-way one -way street on the road and you're going the opposite direction and you look at the cars in front of you and you realize, I've made a big mistake, right? But that's different than sin. Sin isn't just a mistake, right? It's not just an accident. It's, it's something you do against God. When, when um, of course, Psalm 51 is the story of David and he is um, confronted by Nathan over his sin with Bathsheba and then the resulting you know, sins that he did after that to cover it up. And notice there in Psalm 51, he said, I, he didn't say, I made a mistake. Forgive me for making that mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Oops. Right? What does he say? No. Right? Forgive me according to your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. True repentance recognizes sin for what it is. It's sin. It doesn't try to excuse it, right? And of course, we are, oh, yes, we're talking about salvation, but for us as Christians today, how often do we do that, even in our own relationship with God? How often do we try to excuse away our sin? Well, it wasn't that bad. Well, it was just one, it was just one harsh word. 
oh, you know, it was just an accident. I, I, I shouldn't have done it. Yeah, that was wrong. I'll try not to do it again. It's, but it's not that big of a deal, right? That's not true biblical repentance. And by the way, we often think that by calling sin, sin, we're lessening ourselves. We're making ourselves look bad before God or whatever the case may be. But in taking God's side against our sin, we find that God is wholeheartedly for us in Christ. Matthew 10, 39, Jesus says this, He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Romans 8, 31, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You see, when we, I've had this discussion often. How could David, King David, be considered the man after God's own heart? Right? And, and my sister and I have had these discussions back and forth because sometimes we'll talk about things we're reading in, in the Bible. And, and uh, you know, she says, well, we were talking, and it's like, how can David be this lifted up person in, in the Bible when you know, maybe more so than, I would argue, perhaps even more so than Saul, David did more wicked things before God. And yet, whereas Saul had, had offered the sacrifice before he was supposed to, uh, you know, all these things, he, these, yeah, they weren't, he didn't completely destroy the Amalekites. Yes, they weren't great things, but he didn't take another man's wife, and he didn't then have that man put to death, and then he didn't, you go down, and David even, uh, you could argue with how he handled his sons, was a, was a very problematic person, and yet... The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. What could possibly be the difference? And I would argue that the difference is David repented. David wasn't trying to excuse his sin. He wasn't constantly thinking, well, it's not that big of a deal. And you look at Saul, and when Saul is confronted by his sin, over and over and over again, he makes mistakes. He makes excuses. Oh, it was a mistake. Oh, uh, Samuel, yes, I offered the, the, the offering. I was kind of taking your place as the prophet and the priest of Israel. Yeah, I did that, and, and, but it, it was because you weren't here yet, and I had to. The people were getting mad. And, and when David is confronted, what does he do? Psalm 51. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. I've transgressed. I've, I've sinned. I've done all these things. David recognized what had happened. And so even though, even though he did these things, God ultimately was for David. You know, I think it's interesting. One of my favorite verses of Amazing Grace um, I'd heard it, you know, as a kid, every time we'd sing it at our church, of course, every week we'd sing it. We'd just sing the first verse usually, but we'd oftentimes go on, right? And the, the second verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and fear that grace relieved.'" And I, grace taught my heart to fear. The first time I really thought about those words, I, I was, how can that possibly be grace? How could grace teach your heart to fear? Well, grace can teach your heart to fear in that it tells you your true status in Christ. And then before Christ, I should say. You know, it's like the doctor who has to let you down with the bad news. You know, this, this is, uh, you know, recently uh, you guys know I, I hurt my finger, right? Hedge trimmers, watch out. You know, so um, Becca tried to hide the hedge trimmers for me permanently at our household. But uh, regardless, I, I hurt my finger. And of course, you go to the, the emergency room. And uh, I'm not a very good patient, I've discovered. And so, you know, but I, I was there and the, the nurse was like, okay, we're going to have to do some stitches. No, please don't. Right? And of course, you know, there's blood spurting everywhere and it was very exciting. And, 
And uh, I went, thankfully the, the emergency room wasn't very busy when I went in, but I walked in and there, I had this towel wrapped around it with like blood just, you know, oozing out of the towel practically. And uh, there are people right at the, the front and, and they're looking back and they're like, and the, there's a bunch of kids and I'm like, sorry kids, you know, but it's the emergency room. So I was like, this is an emergency, you know, so I was there and, and they're like, oh, okay, we'll get you back, we'll get you back. So they took me around the side and, and the, the doctor had to then look at it and say, okay, here's what we're going to have to do and, and give me the bad news, right? And now thankfully they didn't have to chop anything off, but that's what I thought they were going to say. Well, we're just going to have to take the whole thing, you know, I was like, okay, you know, let me down easy, right? And what's interesting about that with, with repentance there is it recognizes it for what it is. And when we recognize it for what it is, then God is on our side. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. I'm recognizing what sin is. I'm recognizing what it means for me. But grace, my fear is relieved. When I do that, I find that God is for me. When I am, when I am unwilling to recognize what my sin is, that's when God is against me. But when I recognize what my sin is and call it what it is, that's when I become on God's side. And then God works on my behalf. So, God, so repentance starts with agreement. You must agree with God that, and be willing to call sin what it is, and that is sin, iniquity. And then also I'd argue true repentance results in godly sorrow. True repentance results in godly sorrow. Unlike worldly sorrow that only grieves the consequences of sin, Godly sorrow grieves the sin itself. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 actually uses that word godly sorrow. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The key for godly sorrow is its Godward nature. It's for God's sake and not the eyes of others. Luke 18.13 tells us of the, the publican and the righteous man. And of course, Jesus starts with the righteous man and the righteous man prays to God and he's like, you know, I'm such a wonderful person and I, I give up, you know, all these tithes and look at me. And then Jesus points out the publican, this sinner, this tax collector, this individual who everybody in, in Jewish society would hate. And what does a publican do? Instead of going up to, to, the, to the temple and coming near where everybody could see him, the publican stands afar off. And the Bible says, Luke 18, 13, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much of his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, godly sorrow recognizes sin for what it is, and it grieves it, not because of the consequences, but because of who the sin is against. And you know, isn't this the case so often? We're oftentimes tempted to minimize our sin, and then we're oftentimes tempted, even as Christians, to be sorrowful over the consequences for our sin, but not the fact that we've sinned itself. And maybe you've been there. I know I have. You, you do something wrong and you get caught and your first response is, oh no, and you get upset. And, you, and, and, and oftentimes, again, pointing my, my fingers at myself, even though I was, I was praying through this message, I was thinking about this and how oftentimes it's temp, tempting for me just to have the worldly sorrow where I'm like, I don't want, to, you know, I don't want them to, to punish me, right? And, uh, you know, again, I have children, they're young, Children illustrations, okay, I understand. But, you know, it is amazing to me that how the kids, when they get caught, the first thing is, you know, don't give me a spanking. You know, it's like, okay, uh, well, let's, probably not. We're going to talk this through, right? And we're going to figure this out. But the, the, the response is not initially 
right? Is not initially, oh, I'm so sorry, Daddy, for disobeying you, right? The response is, don't give me the consequence, right? And, and that doesn't change when you get older. You're just better at covering it up, right? Uh, they say that adults really aren't that much different than kids. We're just more able to, to say things in the correct way, right? So now it's like, you know, instead of, you know, saying, don't give me a, don't give me a spanking, now it's like, okay, well, um, you know, let's talk about ways that we can not have this be a problem, you know, and, and that type of thing. And, and, but true repentance results in godly sorrow. Not just being sorry that you got caught or the consequences, but ultimately the Godward nature, realizing that your sin is sin against God. You know, it's interesting. Because there's complete forgiveness in Christ, godly sorrow then ultimately hopes for the mercy extended to those who repent. Micah 7.18 says this, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Matthew 9.13 says, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not, not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God says, I want to have mercy. I want to have mercy to you. Who is like God? Pardoneth iniquity. God wants to forgive your sins. And when you come to God in godly sorrow, what's the result? Forgiveness, right? So true repentance, number one, it has agreement with God over the nature of the sin. It also is going to result then in godly sorrow, not sorrow that you got caught, but, sorry that, uh, but sorrow that you have sinned against God. And then also true repentance, and this is the, the thing we oftentimes think of primarily, but true repentance ultimately will then turn away from sin. You're turning away. It's impossible to turn to Christ without also turning away from sin. Notice what, what the Bible says in 1 John 3, 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. You see, when we are sinning against God, we cannot be abiding in Christ. We have to turn from that sin and turn instead to God. It's impossible for you to turn to Christ without turning away from sin. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that you're sinless, right? 1 John uh, 1, 8, 8 through 9 tells us, you know, it says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So it's not meaning that we don't have sin anymore, but rather that we make a clean break from your former allegiance to sin and self. And then ultimately, a life uh, of turning away from sin becomes pleasing to God. And your, the, the desire to please God becomes your primary impulse. First Thessalonians 4 says this in verse 1, Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. You've received of us how ye ought to walk and please God. Abound more and more in that. You know what to do. You have now turned away from, from your sin, and now you are to turn and, to God and abound more and more. You know, the truth is, I've heard this illustration often talks about this, the concept of salvation and faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is, is kind of like two sides of the same coin, right? 
And you, you have to have both to make up, right? If you, if you got a, a coin from the, the store and it was a quarter, you know, it's hard for me even to imagine carrying physical money, right? Because why? But anyways, that's what plastic's for, right? So uh, I know I'm young and all that. You can mock me later, but I guess just buy gold. Is that what they recommend now? Just get a bunch of gold. So anyways, so you, you, get, you get a quarter from the store and you have the head on, on the one side, right? And whatever is Abraham Lincoln or um, George Washington or whoever. And, and if you were to turn that coin over and it was blank on the other side, right? You would say, this isn't legal, right? I can't spend this. It's, it's, not, it's not true money. And it's the same way when we talk about our salvation. If you don't have faith and repentance, it doesn't work. You see, when you accept Christ as your Savior... You turn away from your sin, your past life against God, and then you turn to God. That Turning away from your sin, your past life to God, that's that concept of repentance. And then turning to God, that's that concept of faith. So, when you accepted Christ, if you are a Christian here today, what took place there? Well, hopefully, you understand these maybe even more so now than you were when you originally accepted Christ. I personally uh, think of the time when I accepted Christ as a six-year-old boy and, and uh, praise the Lord that he saved me at such a young age. He saw fit to work in my life in that way. And, and uh, when, I, when I think of that, I, I understood that I was a sinner and that I, I, was, I didn't want to be a sinner anymore. I wanted to be right with God. And so, you know, I, I prayed to accept Christ as my Savior, to use that terminology, I, I do know now, looking back, and, and again, even as I was praying through this message and thing, I was, I was thinking about how God had used different circumstances in my life to convict me of, of my being a sinner, right? And, and how God had worked, and, and I knew very clearly that I sinned, and I know I didn't want that anymore, right? That's that concept of repentance. I, I was a sinner. I didn't want that anymore. I didn't, you know, what, you know, what are you going to do as a sinner when you're six years old? Well, I was really good at getting marks at the school. And at that time, when I was in uh, first grade, if you got enough marks in a week, you'd go to the principal's office for paddling, right? And so I was real good at getting paddlings from the principal, right? And so I knew real quick. And, and the thing was, too, you know, it's hard to know as you're young, but I remember not wanting to do that anymore. I didn't, I didn't want that. I wanted to be able to obey. I wanted to be able to do the right thing. And I knew that I didn't. And so that was that idea of repentance. Could I have told you the word repentance? No. Right? But God was working in my heart. And then, of course, as I prayed the prayer, I knew that Christ had died for my sins. I understood that. I believed that. And that he rose again on the third day. And I understood that. And I believed that. And in that process, that was the process of my salvation. And as you think of your own salvation, I hope that's clearly your testimony, how you know that, that your sinful life, your way of living before Christ, the sins that you committed, you didn't want those anymore. And you wanted a true relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in what he did for you on the cross. But you know, if, if I'm saying these things and you say, I don't know that I've ever done that, then perhaps for you, today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day where you truly look and, and realize the things that you had done wrong. You don't want those things anymore. And rather, you, you want to trust in what Christ did for you on the cross. Wouldn't it be neat if even today, someone in here accepted Christ? So, 
when we look at our when we look at our lives, when we look at this idea of salvation, faith and repentance. There's there's two sides of the same coin, and I don't know for you. Maybe many of you guys look across this audience. You've been saved for many, many, many years. Maybe some of you guys before since before I was born, and you perhaps know these these terms and know understand the realities of them. Maybe today was just a refresher for you. And I hope as you think of this refresher, I hope that you'll rejoice in your salvation and what God did for you and how God worked in your life. And perhaps for today, for some of you, there were some new things. I hope that then now this will equip you as you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, as you lead others to understand what it means to be a Christian. Perhaps this will better equip you as you go about your business to tell others how you accepted Christ, and then encourage them to do so as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for each one of us. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, that Christ died to save us from our sins. Lord, I pray that um, you would help us in here as Christians who have accepted Christ, and maybe who have uh, been a Christian for many, many years. Lord, I pray that we would not um, find these truths of salvation to be stale, but that they would be new every morning. Your mercies, as the Bible says, would be new every morning. Would I pray if there's one in here tonight who has never accepted Christ their Savior, who has never repented of their sin and turned to you in faith, Lord, today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, we have even seen in our church, even in the last few months, so many who have come to Christ. We pray that would continue. We pray that even perhaps in some small way through this message that you would equip those here in our congregation to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ and how they too can become one of your children. And Lord, I pray as we go from here, I pray that we, you would be honored in our lives, that we would um, not just be saved and, and get in our holy huddle and, and just go on and, and, and live in, in isolation, but that would be a testimony in our world, a testimony in the city in the state, and really all across the world, Lord. I pray that you'd use, your, use our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.